Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. We're at the Kentucky Book Fair at the Alltech Arena for our uh, annual, our 36th annual Kentucky Book Fair. And we have an array of uh, important authors and guests lined up uh, this morning. And one of those featured authors at the Kentucky Book Fair this year is Holly Goddard Jones. And we're going to talk with her about her uh, new release, her new novel entitled The Salt Line. Holly, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. And I think before we delve into The Salt Line and get you to tell us a little bit about it, I want to talk a little bit about you and your writing life and uh, how you started, your roots, uh, your Kentuckiness. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I grew up in Russellville, Kentucky and um, lived in the same house until I was 18 and went to college at Western Kentucky University for a year. Go Tops. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so uh, that year after my freshman year of college, um, I ended up marrying my uh, boyfriend um, that uh, I met when I was a senior in high school. And we transferred together to University of Kentucky. And so I ended up finishing my degree there. So I took a tour of some state colleges in Kentucky. Um, and when I was at University of Kentucky, I think two pretty important things, uh, categories of things happened. Um, one was uh, what was happening specifically in my education, which was that I was studying with uh, professors, specifically Nikki Finney and Kim Edwards um, at University of Kentucky, and they were both um, really important mentors to me, um, huge support system, and really encouraging of my writing, and um, I started taking writing workshops and feeling empowered to tell stories, and um, begin to feel like I had something to say and that maybe I had something to say specifically as a Kentucky writer and uh, what I had things to say about being a Kentuckian. Um, the other thing that happened is that I was working part-time at University Press of Kentucky throughout my degree and um, so I was working in the marketing department. I was getting to know about the state through the books that we were publishing by meeting the authors, uh, working with the wonderful staff there, and I continue to be friends with them. And it's really fun to be here today because I get to see them again for the first time in a long time. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I, all of that was really important to my becoming uh, a writer and uh, specifically a writer who really feels like she is of this state and you know technical and uh, you know bigger thematic ways yeah, yeah yeah so was there a time period between UK and your MFA at Ohio State not much of one I, I finished my degree in December of 2003 I think um, it was, or 2002, and um, I went to Ohio State in uh, fall of 2003, so there was just a you know, sliver of time there between, um, and uh, was in Ohio for four years. I, I did a three-year MFA and then taught at Denison University for a year, and then came back to Kentucky for a couple of years and taught at Murray State, so that was my third uh, 
Kentucky uh, public school, <laughs> public university experience. Tell me about your MFA experience and what, how you thought it um, enhanced and helped your writing. So, you know, there's a lot of debate about the value of an MFA and from my own experiences as a student in a program, um, it, it's almost hard for me to question how it could be helpful because it was so critical to any success I've had. Um, I It was three years to focus on writing, to think of myself as a writer, to have a tiny bit of money to support me as I took classes and, and worked. Um, so there's that, but then um, also, I mean, I had really fantastic teachers, and what they're doing isn't telling you how to write. They are teaching you how to read and think critically about writing in a way that um, I think accelerates a process that you might have just by being a, a, a reader. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, again, I was getting mentorship like I got with Nikki Finney and Kim Edwards, and, um, <clears throat> and that was all uh, extremely important, and the connections helped me to get an agent and to get a publisher, and so, yeah, all of that was really uh, valuable. You know, there is that discussion and sometimes debate about the value of an MFA. <clears throat> I'm a graduate of the MFA program at Spalding. Okay, good. And just about the time I got my degree, which was late, um, about five years ago, it seemed like there were articles and conversations about whether or not an MFA is what you should advise a graduating student to do. I found it so valuable. And I've really never met a student who's gone through a program that has told me differently that it was such an underpinning of their writing life. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's just a thoroughly wonderful experience. And I, I teach in an MFA program now, and I think I do really good work um, as, a, as a teacher in an MFA program. I mean, do, do I suggest that um, a, a person who wants to be a writer get into you know $60,000 of debt and hope that on the other side of it they're going to get a teaching position uh, which will probably not pay great uh, to, to start working off that debt uh, either. Um, no, I don't, I don't recommend that but um, I think most MFA programs um, you know, either are priced so that you can, um, you know, pay a reasonable amount to get the degree or offer financial um, aid packages that offset the cost, like the one that I attended. So I didn't emerge from my MFA program with any debt, which was good. What did you learn from your first two works that helped you write your new novel, The Salt Line? Talk about just briefly your other work? Yeah, so I have a short story collection and then a novel called The Next Time You See Me. And um, I think I was writing these big, expansive short stories that were sort of pushing the boundary of what a short story probably ought to be, um, even when I was working in the short form. And um, I think The Next Time You See Me was my... It, it was when I was starting to figure out how to transition from the story to the novel. And so um, there was a failed novel on the way to the next time you see me. Um, 
where I really just had not figured anything out. And um, the early draft of The Next Time You See Me, the, the chapters read quite a lot like short stories and had individual arcs. And so um, on a technical level, I think, between The Next Time You See Me and the new novel, The Salt Line, um, I really just internalized some lessons about what the pacing of a novel ought to look like and how to leave things out and when less is more and um, it, yeah it, it, it what was nice about it is that it seemed like I was trying to figure it out and trying to figure it out and then suddenly I just had internalized it all and I knew what to do um, and now I'm working on a new novel and um, and it feels as if yeah I know how to pace this thing I know how to lay out the, the story um, well, I'm going to give you my blurb for The Salt Line, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, so my blurb is going to be extraordinarily imaginative. And I'm always curious as a nonfiction writer about what one goes through in writing fiction. And for you and this novel, not only just the simple, and it's not simple, it's never, character development is never sim simple. But, but character development, the plot, uh, the, the place, but everything else that you put into it. And I kept thinking, where was Holly Goddard-Jones during all of this? Were you out in the woods somewhere? Um, tell me about uh, the story and how all this came together. Um, so the book is a dystopian novel that is set in a um, version of the United States in a not-so-distant future where um, a, a, a tick-borne illness um, with, with very dire consequences has basically redrawn the borders of um, the, the United States into these uh, self-governed zones. And so the premise of the novel, and this is where it picks up, is with this um, a touring group of uh, very wealthy people who live within the safe quarantine boundary of um, a zone called Atlantic Zone. Uh, they are traveling outside of that quarantined line to um, go on a camping trip, basically, and um, they're paying quite a lot of money to do it. And so you're introduced to these characters who are going on the trip and um, um, what happens when they are in the woods, um, they're going to encounter these ticks and that's to be expected, but then they encounter some things that are unexpected. And um, yeah, so this is the first time I've written in the speculative genre and it's a novel that, I mean, my story here basically is that I, I kind of fought this novel kicking and screaming. I, um, when I when I started writing it, when I had the idea, I had just finished edits to The Next Time You See Me, and I was just kind of casting about for a fun project, something to do in between serious things. <laughs> so, Something I, very light and, and frivolous. Yeah, yeah. So I thought I was writing, I had this idea for and I've always been a reader in um, you know the horror and speculative genres. I love Margaret Atwood, um, and so I had this idea for what I thought was going to be a short story, and I started writing it, and it just kept expanding and kept expanding, and I was having so much fun writing it. But the whole time, I felt like, oh my God, I'm writing a book about killer ticks, and no one is going to take me seriously, and. Um, but as for the process of, of writing this compared to my other work um, and the imaginative stuff, um, 
You know, I mean, there, there, I had to be imaginative in ways that are certainly distinct as I was thinking about what this illness looks like and, um, you know, how it's communicated and uh, what the United States looks like and what the technology would be. Um, but my approach ultimately was to kind of hew as close to our own reality as possible and then to just do little adjustments and tweaks. And that kept it simpler for me, but I think it also made it scarier ultimately. Well you achieved that. Um, so just for the readers um, and listeners who haven't read uh, yet, the I'm curious about whether you consulted with um, anyone in, in medicine about what this kind of killer tick could possibly do. And it's really honestly not without, out of the realm of impossibility that because we know that deer ticks and Lyme disease is such a, an horrific um, disease to have for anyone who suffers through that. So describe for us the procedure that uh, your characters have to go through if they're outside the line and are, are bitten, how quickly something happens. You, you describe that, please. Okay, so um, so the, the procedure here, so the idea is that there are these ticks and um, they're an iteration of the tick that we don't have, uh, thankfully, in existence. Um, they're called minor ticks, and what they do is they, uh, the female minor tick has a kind of drilling appendage and she uh, kind of corkscrew horn and she digs under the surface of the skin and lays her eggs and so when these uh, eggs are evacuated into the human host um, there is a pretty gory eruption which is unpleasant um, uh, secondary to that uh, yeah this is probably as uh, horrific and gross as this podcast has gotten but um, uh, secondary to that some of these ticks carry this disease called Shreve's disease and it's fast and it's deadly so um, it causes paralysis and death within a couple of days time and um, that's the the real threat that's what has um, you know caused people I and mean, it's killed off a lot of people and uh, caused these quarantine lines to go up um, so the one close to foolproof defense against this tick bite is a device called the stamp and what the stamp does, it's um, described as being about the size of a magic marker and um, the person applies it, they have to apply it to the side of the tick bite within a minute of the burrowing and when they've done that and they push the button, it um, uh, sends an anchor into the skin that retracts the tick and then uh, cauterizes the site to kill the tick uh, and the eggs and the pathogens associated with it. So, um, so it too is a kind of grisly procedure and it means that anyone who is traveling beyond the salt line, they're probably going to have to administer this device and they're probably gonna come home with these uh, dime-sized painful scars um, as, a, as a mark of what they've endured. This is the most um, unfair question I could ask you. <laughs> and it, it is always the most unfair question, but I still like to hear authors talk about favorite characters. Mm -hmm. And you have such a, a wide variety. Some are almost, um, you, you don't really get to know them. Uh, they, they sort of grow on you. That's what I really liked about uh, the novel. 
Some make early appearances and, and almost disappear and then come back in uh, startling and surprising new ways. So talk to me about one or two of your favorite characters. Um, so I'm, I'll try to talk about this character without giving too much away, but um, I think that the character that I like the most in part because she surprised me the most is a character named Violet. And when you're introduced to Violet, she is someone who is at that point um, uh, being quite violent and she seems like she is, um, you know, going to be certainly an, an antagonist to the characters that you've come to know and care about. And um, she is very severely disfigured. Um, she has um, been burned very badly at some point in her life. And um, she's so disfigured that it's really even hard to tell, you know, what her gender is, what her race is. And um, when, when I wrote this character initially, I was sort of experiencing her superficially on those levels. Like she, um, she's an antagonist, she's dangerous, she's uh, mentally deranged, she's physically terrifying. And as I wrote the novel and started to think about her experiences, I got to know her better. And um, I think she became kind of the key to the book for me. And so she was a hard one character and I feel like uh, evidence that something unexpected could open up inside of me as a writer. Um, so, so yeah, I'd probably rank her up there. And besides Violet, there are additional strong women characters. Yeah, that was, um, it, it was important to me. Um, I wanted, I wanted to write an exciting book with complicated characters, uh, sort of anti-heroes, um, and, um, you know, for them to be, in some cases, just happen to be women. And um, so the, another character that I really like in the novel is this woman, June. Again, I, I'll try to talk with her, uh, talk about her without giving away too much, but um, she's a, a pretty powerful character, and she's someone who I think has really good intentions, but is capable of doing bad things. And... Um, to explore the range of what a person is capable of doing through her was a lot of fun. What is your, um, oftentimes authors are hesitant to talk about uh, next projects. So, um, and if you are, that's fine. Uh, but are you working on something currently that will follow the salt line? Yeah, I, um, so I have a contract for a next book um, and this all came as kind of a shock to me because um, so the salt line came out in September. I had a baby in uh, November of 2016 um, and uh, I, I had just started thinking in kind of a loose way about what a connected story might be and so I was still on maternity leave when I, I happened to mention to my editor that I was thinking along these lines because she had said to me that people in-house had read the book and they were kind of wondering, oh, I wonder if there's something else. And I said in sort of an offhand way, oh, I was thinking about this. And she got very excited about it and she wanted me to go ahead and write up the prospectus. So I um, spent an afternoon and wrote, wrote a sketch of what I was thinking and sent it and within um, a few days time had a contract for another book book so it's not a sequel exactly it is um, 
it takes up a new set of characters and it's um, set about 25 years earlier in time. Um, and the, the kind of rough pitch of it, or the blurb as you were saying earlier, was that it would be um, kind of like Stand By Me with an all-female cast and it's a journey narrative. So uh, for uh, preteen girls who are traveling beyond the salt line to uh, rescue an older sister who has been uh, trafficked to a, a oh. place outside of the salt yeah. line. So. You really have a knack for writing current themes, and and some of those uh, are are not of your own making. In other words, I, I think you have said that well with the political nature of some of the um, of a character and of some incidences in the Salt Line. You didn't know how this presidential current. Uh, 2016 race was going to turn out, did you? Yeah, no, I, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, so, you know, I was doing final edits to the book, I guess, around the time that uh, Donald Trump secured the nomination, and um, I thought it was impossible that he would be elected, so um, I, I, you know, I, I think at that point I was willing to there were there were things that were sort of coincidentally aligning with what was happening in the world and the character who has some resemblance to Donald Trump existed years before uh, that election played out. Um, I think in the final edits that character and the events around him took on some of what was happening in the world but probably if I'd known what the actual outcome was going to be I don't know if I would have been as interested in intellectually experimenting with um, what a, a world like that would look like um, so I guess it's lucky that I wrote it before I knew how things would turn out. Uh, what's your best advice for young writers? Um, it's a, it's um, a cliche probably, um, but there's a reason that it gets said a lot, which is to read um, and, um, and write the kind of thing you like to read. I think that's what I struggled with for a number of years. I liked to read more broadly than the kind of fiction I felt like I should be writing, and um, I really resisted you know, taking on elements of genre in my work, for instance, because I was being trained in an academic way and I felt like that wasn't serious enough and important enough stuff to be doing. And um, so the last 10 years for me have been a process of taking um, the artfulness that I associate with literary fiction and um, applying it to the kinds of stories that really excite me. Um, so I think the kind of work I'm writing now is uh, more like the kind of stuff I've always enjoyed reading. So read a lot and write the sort of thing you love to read. And as uh, John Grisham and Suleiman Jackson, I don't know if you've met him or not. No. He's our youngest author mm -hmm. here at the Kentucky Book Fair. He's 13 years old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he says, write a page a day. Ooh. Yeah, so, that's good advice. Good advice. Holly Goddard-Jones is one of our featured authors at the 36th Annual Kentucky Book Fair here at the Alltech Arena, and we thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Think Humanities. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org 
iTunes, and SoundCloud.